Heavenly Father, Father, thank you for my health and my strength to come and, and teach, and thank you for those who are joining me today, Father, wherever they may be, that they can hear me and watch this and be a part of it by your grace. Thank you, Father, for the visions you gave John. Thank you for his faithfulness in recording them, and thank you for the faithfulness of men and women over the many centuries since who have preserved these things according to your will. And we ask, Father, all of that work would go to the benefit of our walk here and now, to encouraging us in the midst of trials, to pointing our eyes toward eternity when our world today seems in such disarray at times. Father, help us to remember that our hope lies in those future things and not in our present world. Father, give us eyes to see this and a heart to share this tonight. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, again, thank you for joining me. We're now at the end of the kingdom period in our study of the book of Revelation. But even as we've come now through the end of that thousand year period, there are still a few things left undone before we can fully put it aside and move into what comes next. You remember we've studied the high points of that time called the kingdom and the thousand years of Christ's rule on earth. We learned about the amazing life that's in store for us in this period coming up, uh, which is very soon to come in fact. And we learned that after this period ends, there'll be a, a final war, a period that comes at the end of the thousand years, tacked on to the thousand years. And in that additional period, a war takes place to fulfill the purpose of Christ's rule, as Paul explained it in 1 Corinthians 15 last week. It's a time in when all of Christ's enemies will finally be destroyed, the last of those, of course, being Satan. And as that war ensues, Christ wins the battle, as you would expect, and then there's this seven-year period, we're told, of cleanup, when the aftermath of that war will be uh, cleaned up by the Jews in Israel and the world will see it. All of this is a witness to the faithfulness of God in protecting Israel. This additional time, which according to Ezekiel 38 and 39 is roughly about seven years, maybe a little longer, comes there at the end of the time of the kingdom. And I want you to think more about that moment just as we pass by it. You know, those seven years uh, of time, we will still be on earth. We'll still be living in this period after the kingdom. And it will be a unique time in all of human history, really. It will be a time in which all humanity is saved for the ones who were unbelieving were killed when that war took place. All those who are on earth will be believing and there'll be no enemy of God or of us at work on the earth. Those seven years will be the closest that anyone will have ever known to what it was like to live in the Garden of Eden when man and woman walked with God in a perfect world. That will be a unique time and one that we can all look forward to. Anyway, that time has come to its end now in our study, and so all that remains now is a great judgment that will have to happen after this war of Gog and Magog. All those who have opposed God throughout all of his history are now going to be put before God for a final judgment leading out of this creation and into the next. And that's where we start tonight. We start tonight with this period of judgment that leaves us, uh, leads us out of the uh, war that took place at the end of the kingdom and into the next phase of the book, which is the new creation. And the first and most important to be judged in this process, of course, is Satan. 
That picks us back up in Revelation 20, verse 10. And we're told, and the devil who deceived them, meaning the population of the earth, the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are also, and they will be tormented day and night, forever and ever. So, after the thousand years is over, after that war has ended, and after the seven years of cleanup, or probably right before the seven years of cleanup, Satan is judged. And in this case, you notice his judgment is not the end of his existence, but rather it is the start of a new existence for him, now in torment. Satan joins the false prophet and the Antichrist in the lake of fire. Now you remember the false prophet and the Antichrist were placed into the lake of fire at the start of the kingdom, right at the end of tribulation when Jesus' second coming took place. And when we studied that, I told you at the time, we weren't gonna spend time then studying the lake of fire. We'd wait till we got to this moment. So now today, we're gonna learn what we can about this final resting place of judgment and how the enemy and how all ungodly humanity will enter into it, starting with the first and perhaps most important reality about this place, It actually exists, and it is a place where people live forever. In fact, the place is already in existence right now. But you might ask, where is this place of lake of fire, this intense burning? Well, back in Revelation 14, this is now, of course, several chapters earlier in our study, we had this passing mention to this place. In Revelation 14, verse nine, it says, then another angel, a third one, Follow them, saying with a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast and his image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed in full strength in the cup of his anger. And he will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the lamb. Now, that's a fleeting reference to the lake of fire. You notice the same details we just studied in chapter 20, fire, brimstone, and torment. But you also notice in the passage, it appears that the lake of fire exists in heavenly places outside our sight and experience here on earth. It is somewhere, quote, in the presence of angels. So right now, as you and I are present in this moment together, the lake of fire is empty right now. There's no one that we know of that's been placed there. And during the thousand year kingdom, it will only have two citizens, that is two occupants, the false prophet, and the Antichrist. But then immediately after the war of Gog and Magog, Satan being judged as we see now in chapter 20, he will be joining them in that place. And so now you have all three members of that false trinity, Satan imitating, counterfeiting the Father, the Antichrist counterfeiting Jesus, and the false prophet counterfeiting the Holy Spirit. They are all three now in the lake of fire. And this place is the home of the ungodly and the unbelieving for all eternity. Notice in what I read in Revelation 20, verse 10, we're told that Satan is tormented there forever. And just to be sure you understand that, the writer adds, and ever. There is no end. This is not an ambiguous statement. That is, there's no doubt about what's being said here. There's no other way to interpret these words. It is also confirmed by numerous other New Testament passages, not the least of which is Jesus' own words in Matthew 25, 46, in which he affirms that the judgment for the unbelieving involves physical torment forever and ever without relief and without ceasing. Now, when we hear this, 
we naturally, instinctively, will wonder to ourselves, is that a fair arrangement? We might think that, you know, the punishment doesn't fit the crime here, does it? Uh, it's, you know, if the lake of fire is like a prison where the ungodly are paying back their debt before God, uh, you'd expect that eventually they would have completed that payment. I mean, they only lived so long and eternity is endless. Sooner or later, you, you would have canceled it out, wouldn't you? Well, the problem with that statement is it's not a correct understanding of what's taking place in eternal punishment. It's not a place of restitution. It's not a place of atoning. It's a dwelling place. It's the home. It's the abode of those who are unbelieving and ungodly, those who are unable to enter the presence of God. Paul says this in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 6. He says, For after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction and then he defines what that means. He says, it is being away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. So that's the definition of eternal punishment. And there's actually another word that the Bible uses for this same thing. It's called spiritual death or the second death. And so to be eternally separated from God's presence is to endure eternal punishment, spiritual death, the second death, all the same thing. And you can make a comparison to the believer's future. In the same way that the believer's future is eternal life, and that is defined as being in the presence of God forever. Likewise, an unbeliever's future is eternal punishment, which is being away from the presence of God for eternity. And the second death is eternal, not because we're trying to have the unbeliever pay off some debt or make up for something they did when they were alive. No, it's eternal because their evil fallen nature is eternal because there is no more opportunity for redemption or to be born again or to gain a new spirit because they are forever in that fallen evil nature than they are forever sinning and because they are forever sinning, they are forever offensive to God and cannot be in his presence. The problem is not what they did, the problem is who they are. That's always been the problem, who we are. We are not sinners because we sinned, we sin because we are sinners in our nature. And that nature, not having been born again or changed, puts them out of the reach of the presence of God eternally, for they will never not be that way. And after the kingdom, and after the war of Gog, and after we now have these three individuals, Satan and the Antichrist and the false prophet, in the lake of fire, and all deservedly so, it comes time for God to deal with the rest of humanity. But... You notice these first three actors got thrown in without any kind of formal judgment. There was no trial. No one sat down and did an assessment. They just got thrown in. Wham, wham, wham. Two at the beginning and then Satan at the end of the kingdom. And certainly that's something God has the right to do. His judgments are always righteous. No one stands in judgment over God. They have self-evidently sinned. There's just really no doubt about it. But what's interesting is the Lord does give the rest of humanity a public trial of sorts, a moment in which they see their sins adjudicated and then the judgment that follows. And in preparation for that moment, 
when humanity is put on trial, unbelieving humanity, I should add, in that moment, God brings all of the unbelieving world before him in a single moment. And he does that through a resurrection, giving new bodies to the unbelievers now so that they can literally, speaking, stand in front of God for this judgment. And we see that next in the text, but let's go back quickly to an earlier verse in chapter 20 so that we can clarify what I mean when I say that the unbelievers are being resurrected now. In chapter 20, verse five, earlier we read this. When John was trying to describe how believers were being resurrected at the end of the tribulation, he also addressed the fact that unbelievers would have the same future at a given point. He says in chapter 20, verse five, the rest of the dead, which is speaking about those who were not believing, or let's just say unbelievers, the rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were completed. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who has a part in the first resurrection. Over these, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ and will reign with him for a thousand years. Now, let me help make some sense of what John is saying, and then that moves us now to the context of where we are in the moment of the resurrection of unbelievers. What John is saying is there are two resurrections, not two moments, but two kinds of resurrections. There is the first resurrection, and that kind of resurrection is reserved for believers, those who are blessed to be part of it, the first resurrection. And then there is a second resurrection, and this kind of resurrection is only for unbelievers. But it's not just two moments. In fact, let me show you a chart. You'll see just briefly, looking at this timeline, going all the way back to Christ's own death and resurrection, The first resurrection, the Bible tells us, is a series of events, starting with Christ, who is the first fruits of the resurrection, Paul tells us. Then moving from that to the church at the rapture, from that to the two witnesses during the time of tribulation, and then we have the the resurrections that come, come together at the end of tribulation, when Old Testament saints and tribulation saints are also given their new bodies. And then we had to go into the millennial kingdom, and if we remember, there'll be new believers made even there and then they'll eventually have to get their new bodies, although that's not told to us specifically, so we don't know exactly when that happens. But somewhere in there, it has to happen. So everyone who is a believer gets resurrected at some point, and if you take all of those believer resurrections and put them all together from Jesus until the last believer in the millennial kingdom, that whole group, according to the Bible, is the first resurrection. And you're blessed if you're part of it for obvious reasons. But then after all of that is finished and the first resurrection is done, then you have the second resurrection. And the second resurrection is a moment in which unbelievers now are brought into new physical bodies. Now keep in mind, the reason that the kingdom could not start until all who were gonna be believers had come to faith is because they all had to walk into the kingdom at the same time and be there on day one. That is of all those who lived prior to the kingdom. That's why Old Testament saints didn't get the kingdom before we did. We all show up together. For the same reason, the judgment for unbelievers has to wait till the very end so that all who are ever born and are unbelieving have also all had a chance to live and they will all be in this moment at the same time. That's where we are right now. We're at the moment when all who will ever be an unbeliever have come and died and are now due judgment. 
And so before God is ready to move on from this creation and into what follows, he has to finish this last step of judging those who lived at any point in that prior time of creation and were unbelieving. And so now this is the judgment moment. They've been resurrected and they've been brought before Jesus. And we read in chapter 20, verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne judgment and him who sat on it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books, according to their deeds. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them, and they were judged, every one of them according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. All right, so John sees a great white throne appear and there's an unnamed individual seated on it. He doesn't tell us who it is, but we know who it is. We know it's Jesus and that's because John and Peter both tell us at other points in the gospels that Jesus has been appointed by the Father to judge everyone. John says this in John chapter five, verse 21. This is Jesus speaking. He says, for just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son also gives life to whom he wishes. For not even the Father judges anyone, but he has given all judgment to the Son. And in Acts chapter 10, verse 42, we also read this. And he ordered us to preach to the people and solemnly to testify that this is the one who has been appointed by God as judge of the living, notice, and the dead. Now what that living versus dead means in Acts chapter 10 is simply this. The living in this context are the believers. We have eternal life, we are living. And we are also judged by Jesus, as you remember. We'll face him at our judgment seat moment when we're judged for our service for the opportunity to receive rewards but the dead are those who are going into the second death and they will be judged by Christ at the great white throne judgment, the moment we're now looking at. And their judgment is not for reward, obviously, it is for their deeds having been done and as a result, condemning them into an eternal judgment. So as this judgment commences, notice John says that heavens and earth have fled away, they're not present anymore. Now in this context, the term heavens it means the creation, means the second heaven, or the first heaven, the second heaven. The air, the atmosphere, the solar system, etc., the universe, literally all creation is gone. So as this judgment starts, the universe flies away in an instant. In Luke 21, 33, we're told that heavens and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. And the Greek word for fled, when it says that the heavens and earth fled in chapter 20, is Feugo in Greek, feugo, feugo. And feugo just means literally to run away. And you see that used also in Mark's gospel when Mark talks about himself obliquely as the one who is uh, made naked in the garden because someone strips his cloak off him and he flees, same Greek word. So if you can imagine how fast a naked Mark was running away in a public setting, well that's how fast the physical creation disappears. Kind of hard to imagine, isn't it? the size, the scope of our universe gone that quickly. And then all humanity, unbelieving humanity and believing humanity, all humanity from all history will now be present in this moment before the throne. And that means we will be there not to be judged but to observe and 
in that same moment, all who have ever been born and are unbelieving will be present having been resurrected. Can you imagine how many souls this will be? Can you imagine how many people we're talking about? How many people have lived on this planet over 7,000 years by that point? Whatever the number must be, it has to be billions upon billions of people. Hard to imagine the, this crowd that we're talking about. And even more hard to imagine, we're occupying some space here without a creation to hold us. I mean, where are we? It's not clear at all. It's almost too impossible to imagine. The only light, I imagine, will be from Jesus himself since there is no sun and there's no earth under our feet, or so I, I suppose, because where else are we at this point? We don't know. It's just us in nothingness with Jesus and a throne and everyone else. And then there are these books. Notice that Jesus is judging the small and the great. This is an equal opportunity moment for judgment. No matter who you are here on earth, it won't matter in that moment. Nobody is anybody in that moment except Jesus. And they are all judged from books that are present in that moment. And before we look at the books and the judgment, let's ask this question. Where were all these people before this moment? Where did all the dead come from? Where have they been all this time? And I think to help you with that, let's review what happens when someone dies, generally speaking. And what happens depends on who you are and when you lived. The human body, the human person, consists of two parts, soul and body. And the word soul and spirit are interchangeable in scripture. They're literally synonyms. And any attempt to build a theology around differences is completely contrived because the Bible makes no such distinction. There are two parts to our existence, an eternal, immaterial part that lives on forever and has been God-breathed, and then the material part of us, the body, the container that holds it, and that part came from the earth and will return to the earth. There is no third part. And in our existence of two parts, when we die, they each have their own destiny. I'll use a series of charts here and we'll just walk through it real quickly. First, if you are a Old Testament saint, your body's in the grave and then as you can see, your spirit descended, didn't go up to heaven, went down into a place called Abraham's bosom in the uh, center of the earth and that's because at the time of the Old Testament there had not yet been a sacrifice for sins. Though they were righteous by their faith, they couldn't enter into the presence of the Father and the throne room because they had not yet seen the blood of Christ applied for their sake. So God put them in a place of holding, according to Luke chapter 16, a place that they euphemistically call Abraham's bosom. It's called Abraham's bosom simply because that's where Abraham was, and if Abraham was the friend of God, you wanted to go wherever Abraham was when you died, because you knew God was taking care of him. So it was called Abraham's bosom. You would stay there until such time as Christ died and paid the price for sins, and by his blood, covered those believers. And that happened at his death, and then the Bible says he descended, he spent time in the center of the earth, he preached to those who were in prison, and then he set free captives when he ascended, bringing out of Sheol, out of Abraham's bosom, all believing souls who had been waiting for him. They now are with him in the heavenly throne room. They have stayed with him since that day, and they are now waiting for the moment of resurrection, which for the Old Testament saint, does not happen until Christ's second coming, according to Daniel chapter 12. So until the second coming of Christ, all Old Testament saints are existing right now in heaven in a soul form or spirit form only, waiting for the resurrection. Let's move one step forward. Then we have the New Testament believer, and our path is a little different because we came into existence after Jesus had already died, already paid the price for sin, 
We don't need to go to Abraham's bosom. We don't have that interim step. When we die, again, our body goes in the grave, but now our spirit goes directly into the throne room to be present with Jesus. To be absent the body is to be present with our Lord. And there we stay in spirit form until the resurrection of the church, otherwise known as the rapture. When we come down with Jesus to meet those who are on the earth in the clouds, we're all resurrected and given new bodies, and then immediately we return to the throne room. But now we're in the throne room in a physical body. That's what Paul teaches in 1 Corinthians 15 and in First uh, Thessalonians chapter four. And then in the throne room we remain until the second coming when we come back to this earth. Then they have the tribulation saints. Their path is also a little different. The tribulation saints believe and then die. Their body goes into the grave again. Their spirit ascends to be with Jesus again but they are gonna stay up there like the Old Testament saints did, waiting for the second coming, and at the second coming, they will receive their new bodies as they come down to the earth and are resurrected there. We were told that at the beginning of chapter 20 in Revelation. Now, one group is yet to be uh, charted up there, and of course, that group would be unbelievers. Anyone who dies without faith in Jesus, doesn't matter if you're a Jew, doesn't matter if you're a Gentile, doesn't matter if you've lived on an island and never heard the name Jesus, doesn't matter if you're in a church your whole life, doesn't matter if you're Orthodox, if you're observant, if you're religious, if you're, doesn't matter. Unless you have faith in Jesus Christ, you're gonna follow this pattern. And here's the pattern. For the unbeliever, they die, their body goes into the grave as we all do, and then their spirit descends into the same place, generally, that the Old Testament saints went, except they're not in a place of comfort. They're not in Abraham's bosom. They are on the other side, as it's described in Luke 16. They are on a side of torment called Hades. It's the place that today we call hell. And they stay there in torment until they are resurrected, given a new body, and in their resurrection they come to a moment when they now have to be judged once and for all. After that judgment, they're gonna be put into their permanent, eternal home, which is the lake of fire. Body and spirit in that place. That's where we are right now. So all of these people who've now appeared before Christ at the great white throne judgment, up until this moment, every unbeliever from Cain, literally the first unbeliever we know of, Cain, all the way until the last person to be born in the kingdom time, Everyone between them who's unbelieving and has ever died has been held up in the place of Hades waiting. But they're all brought back in a moment, given physical bodies, and they now stand before Jesus at the great white throne judgment. And in verse 13, we were told that given the locations from which these dead were raised, that it's, being, it's, a, it's a house clearing. Every place that there are dead waiting for judgment is being cleared out. And we need to clarify what these places mean. First, there's the mention there of Hades, which again is the place hell that I had described up here on the screen just a moment ago. This is the place for all unbelieving humanity from all time. And that's Cain and so on. The only two unbelievers who've ever lived who were not there at this moment, that is the only two people missing from Hades at the second resurrection are the Antichrist and the false prophet because they got a preview of coming attractions. They were given bodies, resurrected and thrown into the lake of fire at the outset of the time of the kingdom. They're the only two that are treated differently from the rest. Everyone else now is resurrected in this moment. So that's Hades giving up its dead. 
Now you might think, well then, isn't that enough? Where else are there anybody uh, to, to resurrect? Well, there's a second place. Uh, John says, the sea gave up its dead. Now that might initially sound confusing and some have interpreted it to mean that we have to have a second, a different moment of resurrection for those who are buried at sea instead of for those who are buried in the earth and then out of that comes a whole bunch of bad theology about what you do with your body when you die and on and on and on. Complete nonsense. It comes from a misunderstanding of the text. The word sea here is being used euphemistically. Uh, It is a reference to the abyss. It's a holding place for demons which is another aspect of Hades in the center of the earth. According to scripture, in the Bible, you have two places in the center of the earth for the holding of the disobedient. You have Hades, which is the place for the souls of humanity, and then you have a separate place called the abyss or the pit. Uh, Abusos in Greek, that is the holding place for the demonic realm. That's where Satan was held up for the whole thousand years of the kingdom. They're both places of torment, but they don't commingle. There's no evidence in scripture that says these two places are, are in any way connected. So if an unbeliever dies today, there's no evidence that they're gonna go down and be accompanied by demons. They're just gonna be in a place in which there are other unbelievers. And in the Bible, the word abyss and the word sea, tehom for the deep, are the same word in Hebrew. And now this is in Greek, so it's not that word, but the point is in Jewish thought, the sea becomes a euphemism for the abyss. And John being Jewish, it would make sense that that metaphor would be used here. It's a very common way for the Jew to think. It also fits the theology of the moment quite well in that you have Hades for people and following that you have the sea or the abyss for the demons because all are gonna be judged here in this same moment. This is a judgment both for the ungodly humanity and also for the disobedient angels. And the demons themselves know that this time is coming There's a moment in the Gospels in which uh, Jesus comes upon a demon-possessed man and the demons and the man get worried that this is their great white throne judgment moment because they don't know the timing of these things. And in Matthew 8, 28, it says, when Jesus came to the other side into the country of the uh, Gadarenes, two men who were demon-possessed met him and as they were coming out of the tombs, they were so extremely violent, no one could pass by that way. And they cried out saying, this is the demon speaking, They cried out saying, what business do we have with each other, son of God? Have you come here to, look, torment us before the time? You know, something told those demons, we're not at the right moment yet for the great white throne judgment, the moment when you're gonna cast us into the lake of fire for torment. And so they asked Jesus, why are you here so early? Finally, John says that death gives up its dead. And that seems like a redundant statement, doesn't it? And what it's referring to is the first death Keep in mind here that there's the first death and the second death. In the first death, the body is dying. In the second death, the spirit is dying in the sense that it's being put aside, put away from the presence of God forever. And if you notice in the text we read, death and Hades are joined together in verse 13, and that is set aside or distinguished from the sea, from the abyss. There are two different references, and that's because the abyss is, a re- is the place of demons, and demons don't have bodies. So demons are not part of death. They just went into the abyss. But humanity had a physical body. So we had our bodies in the world of death, and we had our spirits in the world of Hades if we were unbelieving. And so for death to give up its dead, it's a reference here to someone coming out of being, uh, having their first death end, coming out of a state of dead. And that's exactly what's just happened. They've been resurrected. They are now in a living body again. 
The first death has ended for them and they are now standing again in a physical body ready to be judged. So death gave up its dead, Hades gave up the soul, and the abyss gave up the demons. Everybody is present now. Demons, resurrected humanity, both believing and unbelieving, and so now we're ready for the judgment. The second death is now going to come. All the unrepentant sin in the world is now going to be on display in a single moment. You should take that in for a second. Can you imagine all the sin in the world from all history and all those responsible for it and all the hearts behind it are, you, you name the worst that's ever lived, you, you have the typical names on your mind, I'm sure that we all do from history. Put all of those people in one place at one time and you have a profoundly somber moment in which all of this rebellion against God is now present before God and they will have nothing to say. No one will have a word in their own defense. No one will have an accusation against God. They will all stand rightly condemned, all of them opposed to God. But here's the thing you need to remember. We were all born just like them. And but for the grace of God, we would stand in that same place with them. Always remember, you were spared from this experience that we're hearing described here for no reason except the mercy of God. And at that moment, as every knee bows and every tongue is confessing Jesus as Lord, for those who now have been brought there in unbelief, that confession does them no good. Paul told us this would happen in Philippians 2, chapter, nine, uh, chapter 2, verse 9. He says, for this reason also, God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow. Now, notice, at the name of Jesus. So you can imagine in this moment there is some reckoning, there is some statement, maybe an introduction, I don't know, somebody's gonna say the name of Jesus in that moment. And every one of the billions of people that we can't even imagine, all on knees, all bowing. Because Paul goes on to say, of those who are in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, everything. Those who are in heaven, us, those who are on the earth, the humanity that lived through until the end of the kingdom, and those under the earth, in Hades and the abyss, doesn't matter now. Everyone's bowing, everyone's on their knees. And then Paul says, and every tongue is confessing in that moment. No one is silent, everyone is saying, you're Lord, you're Lord, you're Lord, to the glory of God. And so we'd ask, well if everyone's confessing him as Lord, why isn't God saving all of that group at this moment? Well here's the problem. Saying Jesus is Lord in that moment is no longer a confession of faith. It's a self-evident proclamation. And faith is not what you see. Paul says the definition of faith precludes sight. It means you no longer can express something as a function of faith once you see it. Because faith is no longer possible, it's nullified. And therefore, this confession is just self-evident truth. And that is not the means to salvation. So there is no salvation possible at this point. Then in verse 12, these souls are judged, it says now, according to books, and that's where we go now in looking at the books that are gonna be opened before them, and I would presume whatever's in these books is being read or something about them is being said, but you'll notice there are two different kinds of books in this text. We heard about a book of life, and then we heard about books that aren't given a name, but they're in the plural, books, and these books apparently have something to do with their deeds, because that's the manner of judgment. They're gonna be judged on their deeds. 
Now, let's talk about the first of those books, the Book of Life. The Book of Life is mentioned in a variety of places in Scripture. Let me just give you a, a few real quickly. In Philippians 4.3, Paul says, Indeed, true companion, I ask you also to help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel, together with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Paul mentions it there. In Revelation earlier, we heard Jesus saying to the churches in chapter three, verse five, he overcomes, thus will be clothed in white garments and I will not erase his name from the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. And then finally in Revelation 13, we're told, all who dwell on the earth will worship him, that is the Antichrist, everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of the life of the lamb who has been slain. It's all the same book here. And when you look across those passages, you learn a few things. You learn that the book of life is where the Lord has recorded the names of all of those who will receive his mercy. In that sense, it's kind of the the family record of all of the sons and daughters of God. Uh, And these names are recorded, we're told, in this book before creation itself was even established. And so before you were born, before you did anything, whether good or bad, before the earth itself, before Adam sinned, the Lord had a certain family in mind. And he wrote the names of all of those family members in a book called the Book of Life. And then, as the creation came into existence, all human history has played out according to the plan of God, leading to every name recorded in that book eventually being born at some point. And then after having been physically born, there was some later moment in which they were born again by faith in Jesus Christ. Then, of course, they died and later were resurrected at the first resurrection as part of that first resurrection. That is the story of everyone who is in the book of life. So if the great white throne judgment moment that we're studying right here, if this moment is for unbelievers only, why is this book even present at all? Because obviously none of the people about to be judged are in this book. If they had been in this book, they wouldn't be in this judgment because those who are in the book don't come before Uh, the judgment of the great white throne. Well, simply put, the reason this book is here is to prove that none of these souls standing before God in this moment are worthy of acquittal or eternal life. None of them have confessed Christ. None of them have received forgiveness. None of them are part of the family of God. And as a result, they are disqualified or they are not qualified, if you will, to be part of the future of the family of God. That's what that book is there to do. In, in effect, this is the closest you're gonna get to any reality to those jokes about Peter at the pearly gates uh, with a checklist and looking to see who can come into heaven. This is about as close as you get to the truth of that. There is a book, there's a checklist, if you will. It's called the Book of Life. If you're not in it, you're not going into heaven. So none of those who face this judgment moment will be found in the book. And therefore, it remains for them to be judged according to the other books that are present. It's as if you either get one or the other. If you are found in the book of life, then we don't care about the other books because those books don't matter. They are not the means of your judgment because Christ has met the terms of the book's requirements. But if you are not written in the book of life, then you stand for your own judgment according to your own deeds. And that's what John says. They are judged according to their deeds. So that begs the question, what exactly are in these books? And two answers have been proposed for what these books are. One answer is that these books are a recorded history of every single person's sinful deeds from birth 
until death. So every person who's ever lived on earth from Cain all the way to the end of creation who die without faith in Christ, all of their sinful life is written in these books. That's one perspective. And it makes some sense because everybody's life, apart from Christ, is nothing but a long tale of sin, a long story of disobedience, and those deeds condemn us before God if we do not have the atoning sacrifice of Christ covering our sin. So in this case, you have this book being opened for a given person and the list being let, written, uh, read rather, of everything that person has done sinfully in their life, and that convicts them. Now, can you imagine how long that moment's gonna last? I mean, take all the numbers of people, take all of the sin in any one person's life, and you get an idea of just how long this might go on, unless in some supernatural way, it's made to go quickly. But there is a second possibility for what's happening here. A second idea is that these are not the books of your deeds, but rather they are the books of Moses. They are the law, in other words, God's law. And if so, then the reading of these books would not be a retelling of your sins or the sins of those who are present. Rather, it would be enumerating the standards for righteousness. And then each person standing for judgment would be called to account for their deeds against those standards. And in that scenario, their judgment would be far shorter because one sin, one violation of the law is all it takes to convict somebody and then we can stop right there. We don't need to go through the whole list. So breaking one law makes a person a lawbreaker and therefore worthy of judgment. But regardless, either way, the deeds of the individuals are convicting them. Notice John says in verse 15, if anyone is not found in the book of life, then they suffer judgment. Now, the way he's phrased that in the form of a question, for some people it suggests, well, maybe there will be somebody there who will be found to uh, be in the book, but that's not what he's saying. He's not saying there's any chance for that. The search is not to vindicate someone. It's rather to confirm the conviction that if anybody had been recorded in the book of life, they wouldn't have been there in the first place. So all will fail the test. All will be thrown alive, John says, in the lake of fire. All thrown alive. That is a way of reflecting the fact that they've been resurrected. They're in a body now. They're conscious. They're alive. They are gonna survive and live in this place of eternal torment. Further uh, uh, confirmation that the second death is not annihilation. It is a new existence permanently in this time of torment. So the present universe and humanity's home for the past 7,000 years or so is now gone and all who oppose God are now gone, and all the remains are saints in our new eternal bodies, along with the angels and the trinity of the Godhead. And with that, we now enter into the next age of humanity, a time of some mystery, because the Bible doesn't give us a lot, and all we know from it, in fact, is found in just two chapters in the Bible, the last two chapters of the Bible, the last two of this book. Revelation 21 and 22 tell us about a new heavens and a new earth that comes to replace the one that we know now, and in it will be a city in which we will live, but because it's sparse on detail, it probably raises more questions than it answers, and in that fact alone, you see a continuation of something we see throughout Scripture, and that is progressive revelation. From, out, from the time of Genesis onward, God has chosen to reveal himself and our future progressively, in steps, and depending on when you lived in history, 
you might have known more or less about the future than some other generation that lived around you because as more revelation was made known to mankind, the later generations got to hear more and got to understand more. Where we sit today is in a privileged place in which the canon of scripture for our sake is closed and we have so much detail. And yet the fact that there is this far distant future for us in the new heavens and new earth that is so uh, briefly mentioned here, it suggests that there might be more revelation coming for us at some later point that God may again progressively reveal more. And if that's true, then we are like Old Testament saints right now with respect to the new heavens and new earth. We're seeing it in a very limited way, sort of the way the Old Testament saints saw our age or the kingdom age. The writer of Hebrews acknowledges that in Hebrews 1.1. He says, God spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets and notice in many portions and in many ways. The men of the Old Testament received pieces and parts of information And we now have all of what they knew plus all that Jesus revealed as well. In these last days, he's spoken through his son, the writer says. So I think that pattern might continue. So let's move into the first of what we'll learn and tonight we're not gonna go too far into chapter 21, but we're gonna go a little ways into it. Chapter 21, verse one. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth passed away and there was no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the tabernacle of God is among men and he will dwell among them. They shall be his people. God himself will be among them and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And he who sits on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Right, for these words are faithful and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. He who overcomes will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But for the cowardly and unbelieving and abominable and murderers and immoral persons and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars, their part will be in the lake that burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. So as we study these two chapters tonight, starting with where we are in chapter 21, at times we're gonna refer back to two other chapters of scripture. And interestingly, the pattern will be that the last two chapters of the Bible are closely connected to the first two. Genesis chapters one and two have a lot to say about Revelation 21 and 22 and vice versa. And you notice right away that connection because chapter 21 opens by saying there is a new heavens and new earth now being created. Now if you compare that to the opening of Genesis chapter one, you'll see the obvious comparison. He says in Genesis one verse one, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And so you see a parallelism. There was the creating of the heavens and earth and now there's a creating of new heavens and earth. And that parallelism is gonna continue throughout this chapter into chapter 22 And as we encounter it, we're going to make note of it and it's gonna build for us in our understanding. And as it builds, we're going to understand why these two ends of the Bible are so closely connected. We'll get more of that answer next week. Now, moving back to the text, unlike Genesis chapter one, we don't get a clear description in uh, Revelation 21 of what the new heavens and new earth look like apart from a few tantalizing details. 
The first detail we receive right up front, verse one, is that the world lacks a sea altogether. And that is in stark contrast, obviously, to our current earth, which is more sea than land. So we beg a question up front, why did God create a sea in the first world and then not create one in the new world? Remember, the Bible says God makes no mistakes and he does not change his mind, which means you can't say, well, he's just improving on his design. You know, this is uh, Earth 2.0. He just came up with some better ideas. No, he knew what he was gonna do with Earth 2.0 even before he built Earth 1.0. So it begs this obvious question, why the difference then? What was God's purpose in having an Earth with sea and then later an Earth without sea? This issue comes up again in this chapter and in uh, chapter 22, so I'm going to hold off on answering that question until we have put all the facts together and the puzzle is complete. But that's the kind of connection we're gonna have to make between chapters one and two of Genesis and where we are now. We're gonna see how similar they are and yet we're gonna take note of the differences and try to make a story around why those differences exist. But back to the text, next thing we learn. The Lord says he's gonna put a city on this new earth called the New Jerusalem. But you notice the city's not built by human hands. So the people who are on the earth don't build it. Instead, the Lord delivers this city to earth ready-made and just drops it from heaven onto the earth. And scripture teaches that this city is present in the heavenly realm right now. It's already waiting to come down in its appointed day. Hebrews chapter 11 uh, tells us in verse 15, And indeed, speaking of the Old Testament saints, if they had been thinking of that country from which they went out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. And Paul says in Philippians 3, verse 20, our citizenship, which is a reference to a city, our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And there's other references to the city as well. The arrival of the new Jerusalem will be witnessed by us from below as it descends from above and that appearance will be like a bride getting ready to walk down the aisle, John says. So I'm sure we've been at a wedding before, if not your own, and I'm sure you can take uh, some uh, note of this moment or you can identify with this moment. When you look down the aisle to watch the bride walking up to her groom, and it's a dramatic, anticipated, uh, celebrated moment. She never looks any better than she does in that moment, and it's that way for us as we see the new Jerusalem appearing. You can safely assume uh, that we have not seen it before this moment, even though we were in the heavenly realm for a time after the resurrection of the church. Nevertheless, it's my conjecture based on what, what is said here that this is the unveiling of it to us and we haven't seen it before this moment. Just like a groom doesn't see the bride before the wedding day, this will be a special moment for us. A moment we'll be able to look back on and in the meantime, look forward to and to look forward to it while we're in the kingdom because it's something yet to come even then. You know, in the original creation, God also did something like this. That is, he prepared a city for the first inhabitants of the earth, and he put man in it as well. You remember the story? In Genesis chapter two, it says, the Lord God formed man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. And the Lord God planted a garden toward the east in Eden, and there he placed the man whom he had formed. So in a sense, the garden was like the city that Adam lived in, But you notice in this case, this city was made on earth, again by God's hands, and then man was 
placed in it, which I would imagine means he was uh, descended into it. God put him in it in some fashion. But in the new heavens and new earth, the city comes to us. It comes down to us. We're already on the earth. Then in verses three through eight, John hears a declaration about the arrival of the new Jerusalem. And notice Jesus says, this new Jerusalem means all things have been restored to the perfect state. And what he's meaning is this. All the negative impacts of Adam's sin in the garden and of Satan's sin before that and all the curses that came as a result of it and all of the the subsequential sin and destruction and damage and hurt and loss and death that came from it, all of that stuff has now been rectified and corrected. And in this moment, finally, the earth, the creation that God has made for man is back to a place commensurate to where it was before Adam sinned. It's not the same earth, it may not even look the same, but his, the point is that the imperfections that came as a function of sin and the enemy's work, all of that now has been corrected. And for the first time since then, John says in verse three of chapter 21, the triune God may once again dwell among men. For the first time since the Garden of Eden before the fall, the Father himself now is dwelling among men. Not just the Spirit, not just Jesus, but the Father himself now is among men, the triune God. There was a day before the fall when God walked with Adam in the garden. Now he's able to do that again in some sense. And that is the first and major change. Secondly, the creation has been cleansed of all sin and all of sin's consequences, and so there are no more markers of sin. What do I mean by that? Well, no tears, that's a mark of sin. No death, that's certainly a mark of sin. No mourning, no crying, no pain. Did you know that physical pain is a mark of sin? And all of those things existing because of sin, therefore now when sin is gone, all those things are also gone. It was never a part of God's perfect creation that we would experience those things. It was the sin of Adam and before him Satan that corrupted the creation and led to those things. Having removed all the rebellion, now things have been corrected. And reinforcing this imagery as Jesus spoke, I want you to look back again at verses five and six. Jesus reminds us that he is making all things new as he promised and that he is the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. But I want you to look at what he's saying now in this context so that you can gain a full appreciation of what that term means. Have you ever heard alpha, omega and wondered what it meant? Well, it's not just the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet, meaning beginning and end. It also speaks to the beginning and end of creation. That is, in the beginning was the word and Jesus being the word created the heavens and earth, the first time. And now at the end, Jesus is here again, creating all things new. He is not only the beginning of creation, he is also the end of creation. He didn't just begin the first of it, he also is going to make the last one, the one that will get us back to where we should have been. He is the creator of both, and he has promised to do that. And he adds, he's also the source of all life and righteousness, and the key to being present in this moment, to be able to experience these amazing things in this new creation that's coming, is to overcome sin, to overcome death, and the way to do that, of course, is by placing faith in Jesus. And in fact, as we get to the end of this book now, in these two chapters, you're gonna notice this increasing call from the scripture to believe and receive salvation in Jesus. And kind of that's what you'd expect, wouldn't you? I mean, as you get to the last two chapters of the Bible, 
You know, this whole, the whole Bible exists to preach this message and certainly the story of Revelation exists to emphasize the urgency of that message and so as you get to the very end, the story starts to impress more and more upon the reader that you need to accept Jesus as your Messiah if you wanna be a part of these good things and avoid the penalties for those who don't believe. Nevertheless, we know there will be many who do not receive Jesus as Messiah. They are living apart from God now and they will live an eternity apart from him in a day to come. And in chapter 22 or 21, verse eight, John has provided a list of the sins that are representative of an unbeliever's lifestyle. Now, some read this list and they wonder, well, gee, I I see something on here that I've done. Uh, Lying is on this list. I dare say that includes all of us. And if you look at that list and say, well, if it says liar, I must not be able to go, you're missing the point. At the moment Jesus speaks these words, the only people who have any of these sins in their life are unbelievers. Those who are present with him in this moment are absent. All of these things because they have been resurrected into glorified bodies and by their faith in Jesus Christ made righteous. And so his point is, these are the natural fruit of unbelief. They are an unnatural fruit for believers. That is, you might, have a, you might lie as we do sometimes, unfortunately, but it's not the natural state of your heart now. It is an aberration. It is the unnatural state of, an unbelie- of a believer, but it is the natural state of a believer. And so the unbelievers in this moment will still be producing these things because it is natural for them, but you will no longer be producing them because you will be occupying a body that no longer has sin in it. And The point that John is making, Jesus is saying, is that if these things typify who you are and you do not overcome them through faith in Jesus Christ, then you will be judged for them. The ultimate criteria for exclusion from this moment is unbelief, not bad behavior. Keeping in mind that if it were bad behavior kept you away from this moment, who could be in it? It's about grace, not about works. And so after the city is descended and we've received the grace of God in Christ and we enter the city, uh, Hebrews says, then we will enjoy it together. Our last verse tonight in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 22, he tells us that we have come, spiritually speaking, to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to myriads of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood which speaks better than the blood of Abel. What the writer of Hebrews just did right there is list all of the citizens who will be with us in this future city. So let's end tonight by considering what it'll be like to live in this city with all of these different entities around us. First of all, he says the Godhead will dwell in the city. All three persons of the Godhead will be there. This will be the first time we ever dwell with the Father. Secondly, he says the entire host of the angels will be there. You'll be living in a city with angels. Maybe one of them will be your neighbor. Who knows how that's gonna be done. The church of the firstborn will be there, and that's clearly a reference to the church saints. That's to the bride of Christ, you and I. And then finally, the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and that's a reference to all other believers, Old Testament saints, tribulation saints, and the like. So this is gonna be quite a neighborhood. And I tell you what, it sure beats any exclusive zip code you might live in today. This is gonna be one nice place to live. And next week, when we come back into the end of this chapter and all of 22, we're gonna get a bit of a tour of this city, as John does, and we're gonna try to learn as much as we can about what life will be like 
in this amazing new heavens and new earth that's yet to come. Well, we're gonna end there tonight and go into prayer and then following that, as I said earlier, if you've got questions, and I imagine some of you do, you can send those to us right now by texting them to the phone number that you see on your screen. That phone number is a number we use for this night and this night only, just so that you know. If you text there outside of Tuesday nights, it's not received, we're not gonna be responding to it. So if you have a question now, send it to us, and then Pastor Mike will be receiving those. We'll be answering as many as we can in the time we have tonight. But first, let's pray. Heavenly Father, how can we thank you enough, Father, for the future that we have revealed to us in this book? We yearn for it, Father. We yearn for a time with no pain, no tears, no mourning and no death. And uh, we cry out for that day to be sooner. We say as John does at the end of this book, come quickly, Lord Jesus. We have a work to do for you and we will do our best in the time you give us. But Father, we'd be um, dishonest if we didn't say that we would love to move to the state you have waiting for us. And so Father, we pray for that eagerly. We anticipate it. We look up for it. We know the signs of the times are telling us that it can't be far off. And in the meantime, Father, we want to bring those who we love, those we know, those we meet into this place with us. So give us correct, powerful words of your wisdom to speak the truth to those that we encounter about this time and about what's coming. As you show us in in your word, as Jesus did for us in the last passage we read, I pray, Father, we would have the, the courage to do the same to preach that there is a way to overcome and that it's available by faith. Help us to be your ambassador to that message. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.